word to you uh, one final time. Uh, just a, a word of thanks, thanks and gratitude for your for just welcoming some strangers into your midst. I know that um, this church has a lot of transient people, so you guys are used to that. But thanks for doing it one more time. Uh, with my family, we weren't here that long, uh, but felt very welcomed by you all. Um, I've been trying to learn a little bit about Hawaiian culture, and I learned just this week that one of the things that people in Hawaii like to do is talk story. Um, I, d- I didn't know about this. I just found out about it. Um, so I'll just share one sort of interesting story from this week. So Monday, our, my wife and Katie and Enoch got here on Saturday. We were all set up for um, for vacation, and then Sunday came. I preached. We got to hang out with a couple of you. And then Monday, we were all set up. Uh, looking forward to a day at the beach. So we're out at Lonnie Kai Beach, and we had everything ready. I was just, I was just like, yes, I'm in the zone. And um, we're out swimming, and within like an hour of us being out in the water, I get stung by a jellyfish, <laughs> uh, which is hilarious, especially if you know me, because I have like a fear of the ocean. And so this was like just the, 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 the very beginning of our family vacation. But it was all, the rest of the week was just so incredible. And uh, you guys made it especially warm and welcoming, and we just had a really phenomenal time. Uh, another, another quick story, I don't know if this has happened with you, but sometimes there's those passages in Scripture that it's sort of just like a punch to the gut. And uh, this week in particular, this passage has just been one of those ones that just, ah, it hit me hard. Um, so if this if this if this sermon hits you hard, uh, know that the reason for that is that Jesus wants you to hear something. He want he's changing you, he's fixing you, he's putting you back together again, and he wounds you and so that he might heal you. He breaks you so that he can bind you up with grace. Um, so if you've got your Bible before you, uh, let's 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 look at Acts four thirty two five through eleven. And uh, where we are, if you've been with us, you know we're moving through the book of Acts. And the big picture is really what happens when heaven meets earth. Uh, Jesus, uh, Acts is a two-part book, or it's part of a two-part book. Luke was the first volume, Acts is the second volume. And Luke is all about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, his ministry on earth, healing the sick, Uh, preaching good news of liberty to captives. And Acts is what happens when Jesus, who is now ascended, is the risen and reigning king of the world. And what he's doing through ordinary people like you and me. That's what's happening at the big big picture level through the book of Acts. Um, It's what happens when God begins to, like he said he would in the prophets, begins to cover the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. Uh, and he's doing that through just ordinary people, ordinary men and women and children, just like, just like us. Um, and in this sort of mini, mini section in Acts, really from about chapters 3 through 8, what Luke is doing as a writer is portraying the church as the fulfillment in Jesus of the Old Testament temple the Old Testament covenant community of Israel. He's really saying that Jesus was the true temple. He was the true Israel. And now all those who find their their happiness and their joy and their life in this Jesus become a part of God's work, become a part of his community, uh, are being built together into God's temple. 
Um, and really what ha- what's happening in chapters 3 through 8 is as heaven is meeting earth, those tectonic plates are crashing together and there's earthquakes. There's the shaking of the heavens and the earth. And that comes through a, n- a number of different ways that Luke is cluing us into. One is by just external opposition. People are... Uh, angry at the gospel. They don't want to hear it. They're shutting their ears to it, uh, and they are oppressing and beginning to persecute followers of Jesus because of the radical message of the gospel. But also, uh, Luke is giving us, and particularly in this passage, he's giving us little clues that it's not just problems outside of the church that are, are, uh, have the potential to destroy a community. It's also internal problems. It's problems of our own sin and brokenness. And that's what's going on in, in this passage of Scripture this morning. And I find it fascinating that the Bible often, uh, it speaks more about the things that I think sort of really convict us rather than it deals with the issues of those people out there. For instance, the Bible talks a lot more about money and about greed and about hypocrisy than it does about sex. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that? that? The Bible, Jesus occasionally talks about sex, but he far in way more ways talks about our own greedy hearts, uh, which is really very, very interesting. So this morning I want to reflect on three things. I've been here a couple weeks. You know I typically break it down into three points. Um, so first I want to talk, I think Luke is talking to us about the key to generosity, He's telling us about the price of hypocrisy, and, and then he's talking to us about the freedom of costly grace. Uh, the key to generosity, the price of hypocrisy, and the freedom of costly grace. So the key to generosity, well, in this just snapshot of, of the early community, Luke is showing us a community and followers of Jesus that are marked by social compassion. They're marked by social concern. Uh, they care about their neighbor. They love their neighbors. And this is the second time that Luke has, been, has told us this. Right after uh, the event of Pentecost where Jesus gave his spirit to the church, uh, Luke records that the early church was marked by this just radical concern for social compassion, uh, for loving their neighbors, for giving to the poor, for taking care of the poor. And so this is the second time. This is very important. It's one of the marks of of the of the early of the early church that that they they balanced in a very beautiful way both the proclamation of the gospel on the one hand and also deeds of love and mercy a uh, strong a strong ministry of mercy to to the to the uh, to people who were un, who were marginalized excluded poor um, and each of those ministries, both that, that ministry of word, ministry of proclamation, ministry of the gospel, and then tangibly showing the gospel through mercy, supported and enhanced each other, as we'll see in just a moment. Um, so what the question is, what, what unlocked their hearts to that kind of generosity? What was the key to that kind of, that kind of just generous, radical, self-sacrificing giving? A couple of things. One is they acknowledged God's ownership of everything. Uh, notice right in, in verse, um, verse 32. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, 
That's fascinating. No one said that uh, their own stuff was actually their own. Uh, I think one of, the, one of the things that Luke is keying us into is the reality that insofar as you recognize that everything that you have, uh, your status, your position, your wealth, your money, your power, your success, everything that you have is given to you by God. It doesn't actually belong to you. It's a gift. It belongs to God. Uh, that will unlock your heart to be radically generous. There's another key to that in this passage, I think. When it, when it, uh, when it, when it says that Joseph, uh, later on in the passage in verse 36, uh, who's also called Barnabas, he has this nickname Barnabas, son of encouragement. Uh, Luke says that he's a, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Uh, so Luke records this just offhanded comment, the tribe that he's associated with in Israel, uh, his ethnicity, as well as uh, where, he, where he grew up, uh, where, he, where he was from, and also that he owned property. Luke doesn't just throw these details in to, as sort of Bible trivia. He's, he's cluing us into the reality that Joseph, Barnabas, understood this. Uh, that Barnabas understood that where he was born, the family that he was born into, the position that he had come to be in, was all designed so that he could be a sharer of the things that God had given to him. Um, Your money, your status, your career, where you were born, when you live, uh, what century you're born into, your health, uh, your family, all of that, determines where you are on the social spectrum and all of it is a gift from God. And when you understand that, you will, it will unlock your heart to be generous with the things that you have. Um, one of the other keys is that this early community was, was a foretaste. It was a trailer. It was a sign of something that was coming in, in far greater ways in the future. Um, this passage is somewhat, it's somewhat odd. It sort of comes right in the middle of the, story, the two stories of persecution. Luke just sort of drops it right in the middle. Um, and the clue to what Luke is doing here comes in verse 34, where uh, Luke says, there was not a needy person among them. Now you can just read right by that, and I, I read right by it too, to you, to you read some other scholars, you read some books, uh, you understand that what Luke is doing, that quote, there was no need, that's actually a quote, it's an echo. It's some, it's, he's, what Luke is doing is recording, he's echoing Deuteronomy 15. And in Deuteronomy 15, Moses records that uh, God gave a, 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 a legislation, he entered into a covenant with Israel, in which he said that um, there were going to be patterns, cycles in the, in the community of Israel's life, in which after so many years, debts were to be forgiven, slaves were to be liberated, captives were to be set free, and uh, that was to be a sign of God's liberating presence among the people of Israel. So you see what Luke is up to? He's saying that this, these early followers of Jesus, of which you and I are a part, are to be a foretaste, uh, sort of a, a, a sign of a coming attraction 
in which God will liberate this whole world from all of the bondage and captivity that come with poverty and injustice and enslavement uh, to riches, uh, to the poor people that are marginalized and don't have all the opportunities and access to the things that, uh, that come with wealth and status. We are to be a, a sign, um, a picture of God's liberating, compassionate, kind presence in the world. Um, and the church is the fulfillment of that. You and I are, are the fulfillment of what Moses and the prophets talked about in passages like Deuteronomy. Why is that? Why was that church? Why was the church? Why are you and I now uh, free, liberated to do that? Well, the answer is found right in uh, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. See what Luke is doing? He's, reco- he's connecting the preaching of a resurrected Messiah the preaching of a resurrected king of the world with radical generosity and self-giving. See, those early disciples, their hope, their security, their happiness, their fulfillment wasn't found in money or possessions or stuff. It was found in the reality that they knew. They knew. They were convinced. Some of them had seen with their own eyes and touched with their own hands a Messiah, a king, a savior who was now ruling and reigning as king of the world. So they knew that everything that belonged to Jesus now belonged to them, was their inheritance through Jesus the Messiah. Uh, it's, it's interesting, you know, I read this like 50-page article on uh, the history of interpretation of passages like these in Acts. Uh, it's fascinating uh, seeing, seeing all the scholars from basically right around the Reformation period all the way to the modern period debate what's going on in these passages. Is this communism? Is this sort of uh, is this socialism, this sort of socialistic communalism? Uh, is this, uh, you know, capitalistic um, charity and, um, and philanthropy? The answer is it's neither of those. Uh, the gospel comes and it, it corrects and it challenges stuff like communism and socialism and individualism and capitalism. Uh, and what, I'm, what I mean by that is this. The resurrection comes, the preaching of the resurrection, when these Christians understood the beauty of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, it wasn't a matter of them for, the church forcing them to give up their property. It wasn't an issue of their own charitable hearts uh, working up a, 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 a heart of compassion for the poor. It was a it was a reflex to the resurrection. It was it just became instinctual when they saw need, when they saw the poor, when they saw those who were suffering. They moved towards them, and that that happens when you when you when you get the gospel, when you understand it, when you see the beauty and truth of the resurrection. So here's the question: What's your reflex? When you see people who are hurting, who are broken, who are suffering, who are disenfranchised, who are poor, what's your reflex? That shows something about your heart, I think, shows something about my heart. Um, But it also, our reflex in, in moments like that shows other people something about Jesus. Bill mentioned just earlier 
this quote from Sheldon Van Auken in the, the beginning of the worship folder about how the greatest tes- one of the greatest testimonies to the gospel is the lives of Christians. One of the greatest condemnations of the gospel is the lives of Christians. Listen to Emperor Julian, who was writing in the, the 3rd century. Uh, a pagan emperor hated Christianity, hated Christians. He said this, he says, These impious Galileans, he's talking about Christians, these impious Galileans not only feed their own poor, but ours also. See their love feasts and their tables spread for the poor. Such practice is common among them and causes a contempt for our own gods. Uh, What this early emperor was noticing was that when Christians have a, a compassionate concern for the poor, they reflect the beauty and truth and goodness of the gospel. And that, that causes contempt for all other worldviews, for all, all, the, all other religions. Uh, that's what Luke's indicating. That's one of the, that's, this, is the, this is the key to generosity. Um, so what's the price of hypocrisy? Well, notice what Luke is doing in this passage. He is almost doing a comparison and contrast. Uh, one between Barnabas, uh, this submissive, humble, self-sacrificial person who had a field, had property. Um, Cyprus was known for its wealth, for its agricultural wealth. Um, So on the one hand, Barnabas, who's this positive exemplar of radical generosity. And yet on the other hand, this negative example of Ananias and Sapphira. What's going on? Um, Well, a couple of things that are helpful to understand. One, notice what, notice what Peter says, he says that, right, they kept back, they kept back money. They, they sold a piece of property and they kept back some of the proceeds of the land, uh, some of the income that had come to them. Uh, they kept back a portion of that. Uh, but sort of reading between the lines here, you have to understand that probably what was going on is the church knew about people who were giving, selling property, selling their possessions, giving them to the apostles so that they could distribute to the poor. And there must have been some type of arrangement in which people made an agreement or or, or some some type of covenant or agreement with these apostles about, hey, we're going to sell this and give to the poor. It was sort of known among the church who was doing this, who was selling their possessions. Um. So Ananias and Sapphira had done something similar to what Barnabas had done and yet kept back some of those, some of those proceeds. That's what Peter says in verse 3. He says that they kept for themselves some of the proceeds. So what's going on just at a, at a ground level is they are, the, the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira are being revealed to be those that are enslaved in some way. Uh, they're servants of stuff. They're, sur- they're, they're materialistic. There's something about money that has grabbed the hold of their heart and they feel like they need it to be secure, to be happy, to be successful. And that's what Jesus says all over the New Testament, um, that there is a deceitfulness in riches where you think you can serve both God and money, stuff at the same time. And Jesus says, no, you can only have one master, one Lord, one king. Paul talks about uh, the deceitfulness of riches and how a desire for money uh, leads people to destruction. 
And that's easy to understand. I get that, right? That you, the, so it's almost like the more money you make, the more things you need to buy because you think you have more need, right? Um, my wife and I, for, for several years, existed on one small income while I was going through school. And now, we're, now we have two incomes. We feel like it's not enough. Uh, we feel like we need more. Uh, a great example of this, one of my favorite examples of this, is uh, from an author. He formerly worked on Wall Street. His name's Sam Polk. And he wrote an article just two years ago that sort of was sort of going viral. Uh, it's called For the Love of Money. And he said, in my la- he, I'm quoting him, he says, In my last uh, year on Wall Street, my bonus was $3.6 million, and I was angry because it wasn't big enough. I was 30 years old, had no children to raise, no debts to pay, no philanthropic goal in mind. I wanted more money for exactly the same reason an alcoholic needs another drink. I was addicted. It was staggering to think that in the course of five years, I'd gone from being thrilled at my first bonus of $40,000 to being disappointed when my second year at the hedge fund, I was paid only $1.5 million. You see what he's saying, Sam, Sam Polk is saying, is that uh, the more, there's the deceitfulness in riches that it will enslave you, it will entrap you, that you think, oh, if I just had this much more, then I would be happy, then I would be successful, then I would be able to live the life that I, that I want to live. That's the deceitfulness of riches talking. But there's a sin underneath that sin of greed uh, there's, as there usually almost always is, in all of our sins, there's a sin underneath the sin. There's something, there's something motivating our hearts. Uh, and that is really a bondage to themselves. Ananias and Sapphira were enslaved to themselves. See, the Bible, the Bible talks about sin, and I know that can sort of be a, uh, that's an old-fashioned word, uh, sin. It's people doing bad things. Yeah, it's, sin is people doing bad things, but it's so much more than that. The Bible talks about sin as being a kind of slavery, a bondage, uh, this power that enslaves us. And what's going on in this passage is very similar to what Adam and Eve faced in, the, in, in Genesis, where they, they were enslaved to something. Something had captured their hearts uh, something that had caused them to doubt God's generosity, doubt God's provision, doubt God's sovereignty and control of all things. And what's ultimately happening, I think, with Ananias and Sapphira is they, are, they end up paying the price for their hypocrisy. They're, they're using God. Um, they're using spirituality. They're using their status to to get people to think that they have some kind of reputation that they don't. Um, They're using God to build a name for themselves. They wanted to be known as sacrificial givers without any of the self-sacrifice that is demanded in generosity. I think fundamentally they missed, right, that God's grace, God's naming of them wasn't about things that you do. It wasn't about works. It wasn't about them meriting things. It was about God's grace. Barnabas got that. He was merely responding out of gratitude and thankfulness for God's grace in his life. Um, They were 
curved in on themselves, focused only on their own reputation, only on their own status, only on their own position, only on their own success. Ultimately, though, sin, it's, it's an enslaving power, but it also minimizes God. Sin always minimizes God. What do I mean by that? Well, notice what they do. Peter, he says that one of the primary sin is that they're lying to God. They're lying to the Holy Spirit. That's what sin always does. It, it questions God's character. It presumes on God's kindness. Uh, it ignores God's truth. It, it neglects God's holiness. That's what sin always does. The way this occurred to me this week is as I was reading this passage, I don't know if this struck you, I was reading this passage and I was saying, this is, I mean, not that big of a sin, right? I mean, look at the reaction. They both die. And I'm sort of reading this, I'm like, seems like a bit much. Till you step back and then say, sin is never just a sin. Sin is always an assault on the character and reputation and person of God. It's not just a little sin. That, and they, they end up paying the price for that hypocrisy, for thinking that they could build, use God to build a reputation for themselves. Well, what's the freedom of costly grace? This passage is one of those passages in the New Testament that highlights the severe judgment of God. This is God's wrath against sin, which should call into question a number of things in our minds. Um, One is a lot of people sort of pit the Old Testament God against the New Testament God, that somehow the God of the Old Testament was a God of justice and wrath and anger. The God of the New Testament is a God of love and charity and compassion. That, that sh- this Passages like this should just completely undermine any thoughts of, like that about God. Um, God is the same. He's the same in the Old Testament and he's the same in the New Testament. And what's going on in this passage is God is showing that his people, his temple... Uh, need, needs to be absolutely pure. It needs to be undefiled. It needs to be clean. It needs to be, um, it needs to be marked by integrity. Notice, notice if you go back and read through the Old Testament, some of the stories where God's wrath is unleashed against someone in the Old Testament often has to do with people defiling God's, uh, the place where God's presence dwelt. So you think of a passage in the middle of Leviticus where Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, uh, do this somewhat, at least to our eyes, trivial thing of offering um, unauthorized incense in God's presence, and they're struck down. Uh, think of passages like Joshua where Achan, uh, actually there's some scholars suggest that there's some correspondences here between the sin of Achan Uh, Just taking a little amount of treasure from the city of Jericho and God striking down Achan and his family. Think of 
uh, the passage where the Ark of the Covenant is on its way to Jerusalem. King David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant, and a man named Uzzah reaches out to grab hold of the Ark because it's tipping and about to fall on the ground, and God strikes him dead. See, in each one of those stories, and in this story, God is indicating that his people, his temple, the place where he dwells, is to be marked by integrity, uh, by absolute holiness and perfection. And that the, the, the price, the price of that uncleanness and impurity and defiling is death. The wages of sin is death, Paul says. That's, that's the negative aspect of, of God's law, of, of God's justice. But there's also a positive aspect, right? This passage is showing us that Barnabas was marked by absolute compassion and mercy and grace. See, God's law just didn't say, don't be defiled, uh, don't do bad things. It also says, be righteous, uh, be marked by integrity and compassion and mercy and justice. Um, and Barnabas was the model of that. He was one of the early church's models of that. He exerted himself uh, for people that were not like him. He, w- he, had a, he was wealthy. He had status, a name, a reputation. And he gave of himself for people that were not like him. So on the one hand, you have God's severe judgment, a picture of God's severe judgment, and yet on the other hand, a picture of God's mercy and grace in the life of Barnabas. And that, friends, right there is, is just a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ, where God's severity and judgment and wrath meet God's compassion and kindness and grace and mercy. The cross is where those two things meet and intersect and interlock and come together, right? Paul says that it was on the cross as Jesus was crucified on the cross, executed as a common criminal, without any clothes, naked, poor, neglected, ashamed, mocked, despised, that it was actually him impoverishing himself so that you and I could become rich. It was him, out of the kindness and overflow of love in his heart, uh, that he absorbed God's severity and wrath against our, my hypocrisy, against your hypocrisy, against our sin of greed, and thinking that we can, if we accumulate enough, uh, we'll be satisfied and secure. Uh, one of my, I'll close with this. Um, one of my favorite. The best book in the Chronicles of Narnia, undisputed, is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And the best scene in the best book of the Chronicles of Narnia is, involves Eustace Clarence Scrub. Uh, I love how Lewis introduces Eustace. He says that um, there was once a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Um, Eustace, if you've read the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you know that Eustace was just, he, he was the worst. And he was, he was filled with pride. He was filled with greed. It was all about Eustace. And there's this moment in the book where Eustace stumbles upon this hoard of dragon treasure on an island. 
and Eustace ends up falling asleep. He's fall, he falls asleep on this hoard of dragon treasure, and um, as he's dreaming, he's dreaming of all the things that he's going to do with his status and his reputation and his wealth, and he's just consumed with greed. And he wakes up and he discovers he's a dragon. He's turned. He's morphed into a dragon. Uh, and there comes this beautiful point in the story in which he's trying to get out of this dragon suit. He's trying to scrape. He, he recognizes that a dragon is somewhat like a serpent, that it sheds its skin. And so he begins to try to peel off the layers of, this, of, this, of the dragon's scales off his body and realize that every time he peels off a layer of scales, there's just another layer underneath. Uh, that there's sin underneath the sin underneath the sin. And he can't get free of it. And there's this moment that comes where Aslan, the lion, comes to Eustace. And Eustace, um, he's, he says that he, he shouldn't be afraid of a lion because he's a dragon. And yet there's this fear that grips him. Not, and not a fear of, uh, of being afraid of the lion, but just this great fear that overpowers him. And Aslan comes to Eustace and says, uh, the only way that you'll be free of these scales is if I undress you. And I'm going to read just a, just, a, just a passage from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like billy-o, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and I found that I turned into a boy again. Do you want to be free? Do you want to be free of your sin? Do you want to be free of the, the deceitfulness of riches that entangles our, all of our hearts? Do you want to be marked by compassion and generosity and radical self-giving? Um, do you want to have a heart of compassion for people that are marginalized and excluded? Do you want to be free of the dragon suit? Then you have to let Jesus undress you. You have to get a faith sight of Jesus hanging on the cross, pouring out his love for you, making you new, being raised on the third day, making you a new creation, making you a human again. When you get a faith sight of that, when you see Jesus pouring out himself, you'll be marked by radical generosity. See, these Christians, these early Christians, they were marked by radical self-giving, by radically giving, generously giving all of their liquid assets because ultimately they knew, they knew that they had a Messiah who on the cross bled out all his liquid assets, all the benefits of the gospel. Everything that is Jesus's is now yours by faith. When you understand that, when you see that, when your heart is just marveling and rejoicing in that, you'll be a boy again like Eustace. You'll be made 
human again. Let Jesus, let Aslan, that great lion, undress you and put you back together again. Let him clothe you with robes of righteousness. Let him give you riches that are unspoiling and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Jesus himself, when, he's, when you know that he treasured you above all things and he's your ultimate treasure, you won't be consumed. You won't be uh, entrapped. You won't be um, enslaved to the treasures of this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the beauty and the goodness and truth of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you loved us so much that you did not spare your only son, but gave him up generously for us all. Uh, We thank you that at the cross, uh, your severe judgment comes together with compassionate kindness. Uh, that you have revealed yourself to be both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. Free us from the deceitfulness of riches. Free us from the deceitfulness that, um, that our names and our reputation and our status are what is most important. Father, as the writer of Ecclesiastes said, those are, those are but a breath. They are wind. We will all one day succumb to finitude. We will all die, and those things will mean nothing. Uh, But we thank you that we have a Savior that overcame death, that has given us an inheritance of eternal life. We thank you and praise you so much for him, and we ask that we would just stand back in awe of your beauty and let the gospel undress us and then clothe us in your beauty and perfection. We thank you for a righteousness given by faith, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Prior to the Lord's Supper, we uh, take a moment to affirm some aspect of our faith. We join with the Universal Church uh, in expressing uh, the core of, of our doctrine uh, in some way or another. So would you stand, and we're going to say aloud uh, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, and it really assures us that God is committed to our comfort, and uh, it reminds us of, of God's great work of providing that comfort in Jesus. So Christian... Um, What is your only comfort in life and death? 